Good morning, everyone. Uh, today is the last in the series of our um, preaching series looking at lessons from the life of David. And as I'm sure you'll agree, it's been somewhat of a roller coaster as we've studied this famous king. Uh, for instance, we've seen his great triumphs, his acts of faithfulness, uh, but we've also seen his weakness and some, some real shameful acts uh, laid bare within the text. But I'm sure you'd agree that as we've looked at it, we've seen a man who has been very quick to worship. Now, this is the last in the series, looking at one of David's last acts, uh, and we've called it a legacy of worship. Now, legacy is a funny thing, is it not? Sometimes it can be reduced down to just some famous last words. Uh, for instance, you have the unfortunate last words of the Union General John Sedgwick, who um, spoke his last words in rebuke of his men on the battlefield. They were sort of ducking and, and cowering against pot shots from the enemy. And his famous last words were this, why are you dodging like this? They couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. Now, as these were his last words, it would appear that they could do better than just hit an elephant at that distance. Now, sometimes a legacy can be a great achievement that is tainted by a final act. Uh, for instance, I, I think it's quite a shame that the phenomenal player Zinedine Zidane, who as a player won uh, World Cup, Champions League, Ballon d'Or, but he's just as likely to be remembered as a player for that famous off-the-ball headbutt that saw him sent off in the World Cup final. Today, however, we're looking at King David's legacy, and I believe this final act that frames his legacy is one that reflects the life lived by this man. We're looking at 1 Chronicles chapter 29, in which King David gives his final public address that is recorded by the author of 1 and 2 Chronicles. And this final act will help to frame his legacy, a legacy of worship. So as I've said, today we're looking at 1 Chronicles chapter 29. It's going to be too long to read out in full, but please do have it open in front of you because we're going to focus in on a particular section of it. Now the chapter opens with David in front of the assembled leaders and people of Israel. And he starts off by stating that it's not going to be him, but it's going to be his son Solomon who is going to build the temple, a temple worthy of the God who's given David so much. Now, we found out from a previous section of scripture that David wanted to build a house for his God, but that he wasn't permitted to do so. So David is, does the next best thing, which is to ensure that his son would have all the financial backing and all the craftsmen and skills necessary to build an amazing and spectacular temple. So he donates vast amounts of his personal treasure. And then he asks the leaders and the commanders who are present. And he says, now who will volunteer to consecrate himself to the Lord today? And it says that they gave willingly. And from the amounts recorded in the chapter, we know they gave very generously as well. Then reading from verse 10, it says this. Then David praised the Lord in the sight of all the assembly. 
David said, may you be praised, Lord God of our father Israel, from eternity to eternity. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the splendor and the majesty for everything in the heavens and on earth belongs to you. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom and you are exalted as head over all. Riches and honor come from you and you are the ruler of everything. Power and might are in your hand, and it is your hand to make great, to give strength to all. Now, therefore, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? For everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your own hand. For we live before you as foreigners and temporary residents in your presence, as were all our ancestors. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. Yahweh, our God, all this wealth that we've provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand. Everything belongs to you. I know, my God, that you test the heart and that you are pleased with what is right. I have willingly given all these things with an upright heart, and now I've seen your people who are present here giving joyfully and willingly to you. Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, our ancestors, keep this desire forever in the thoughts of the hearts of your people and confirm their hearts toward you. Give my son Solomon a whole heart to keep and to carry out your commandments, your decrees and your statutes, and to build a temple for which I have made provision and then David said to the whole assembly, praise the Lord your God. So this, the whole assembly praised the Lord God of their ancestors. They bowed down and paid homage to the Lord and the king. Wow, when you read it, you can almost sense the excitement of the occasion leaping from the page. Now, this is the focus of the of the whole chapter uh, it says that uh, later on solomon um is anointed king but that's almost like an afterthought to this incredible section of scripture this as i said is david's sort of last recorded words by the author of one and two chronicles and it was certainly one of his last public acts and he has chosen here to ensure that the temple of god will be built and it's going to be spectacular in its splendor this is a staggering dedication of personal wealth and those of the leaders around him, equating to multi-millions of pounds by today's standards. This wasn't a whim, and there's certainly not small change, even by uh, ancient kingly standards. This was sacrificial giving by David and by the leaders who responded to his example. So how come he was able to devote himself like this? to rejoice greatly at seeing all this wealth provided for the temple building project. Remember, this is a project that he is not going to live to see completed. Now, when we read his prayer like we have done, I believe there are three things that helped him to worship in this way and to encourage others to do the same. And the first two are to do with the correct perspective. Firstly, is that he knew who God is. So in this chapter, we see a grand and noble king. He's standing there, presumably in, in finery. And he's not only able to assemble the people of Israel, but he's able to inspire their leaders to give and to give generously. But it wasn't always so. As we've learned looking back over the past few weeks from David's life, David had not had the easiest of lives. 
We know this, and it's not just a sort of historical look back to deduce this, but it was known at the time that he'd not had a easy life. Uh, from Joab's pep talk in 2 Samuel 19, we know there's a general acknowledgement that David had had a pretty troubled time. Indeed, just a, a quick look back on the things that we've looked at. We know that David was promised to be king, but then he had to wait 15 years before he was, well, before he sat the throne of Israel. I mean, that might not be a, a biggie because he still gets to be king. But then in the intervening time, the then king Saul led a personal campaign with all the backings that a king could, could generate to end David's life. So he was familiar with false accusations and a life on the run. We know he was familiar with grief. He lost um, his best friend, Jonathan. He also lost um, the lives of his children, some in infancy and others as adults. He also suffered as a result of his own sin. And ever since the Bathsheba incident, uh, there was continual strife within his household, uh, including the horrendous rape of his daughter and also the uh, betrayal as his son Absalom usurps him. He seizes the throne and once more David has to live life as uh, someone on the run. See, David was not immune to suffering, but now he is triumphant. He has stood there in front of the whole assembly, rich beyond measure. See, this could be a self-glorification moment for David. See how far I have come. See what I have gathered before me. We could have Frank Sinatra's I did it my way blaring in the background. It wouldn't feel necessarily out of place. But he doesn't do that. This is not self-glorification because I think that he has perspective on who God is. See, David's prayer doesn't strike me as a dry and sort of solemn speech given on a portentous occasion. It just seems to explode from him. He declares his praise of God, God's greatness, his power, his glory, his victory, his majesty. And then this praise of God forms this amazing crescendo to verse 13, where he says, Now, therefore, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. See, in verse 11, he states, yours, Lord, is the kingdom and you are exalted as head over all. David has the correct perspective. It's God's kingdom. God is the king. God is head over all things. He is the source of honour and wealth that David has. David gets that it's not about him, but about his amazing God, the true king. That God is king no matter who sits on the earthly throne. As David Ralph Davis, sorry, Dale Ralph Davis, brilliantly puts it in his commentary on 2 Samuel. He says this, this is not about David. It is not even about covenant kings. It is about a covenant God who makes covenant promises to a covenant king through whom he will preserve his covenant people. I think David, if you heard that, would wholeheartedly agree David understands that he is there by the will and the grace of God. David praises God because of who he is. Now, we know that God is the same yesterday, today and forever. He is still worthy to be praised. He is still, as David said, great, powerful, glorious, victorious and majestic. When I pray in the morning, when I have a quiet time, 
I'll sometimes jot down my prayers in a notebook. And, and when I do, I often will look back and see the phrase, and I'll write it quite often, which is, you are king and I am not. I think it's just a good way of maintaining my perspective. Now, do you have that perspective that David had? Or are you king or queen of your own throne? So that is the perspective that David had, that God is king over all things. The second perspective that I believe helps David build this legacy of worship is that he understood not only who God is, but what is his, what belongs to God. When we see the second half of David's prayer, he says, for everything comes from you and we have given you only what comes from your own hands. All things belong to God and therefore we are only tenants of what we own. This ours and your, uh, sorry, ours and his co-ownership can be a difficult thing to grasp and I struggle with it regularly. Uh, to try and form a, a very simple analogy, um, my uh, wife's parents uh, owned a beautiful uh, black Labrador. We would take her for a walk and um, on the way home, she would want to carry her lead back. Um, so you would wrap up the lead and put it in her mouth and she'd trot home feeling very proud of herself that she had her own lead. And then when we got back, she would proudly again deposit this slobbery mess into your hands, having given it to you. But the lead was always mine as well. It was her lead, but it was mine too. It was a co-ownership. Now that is a deliberately simple and dare I say it silly analogy. But I think it can be useful to apply the simplistic to the complex and to things that occupy our thoughts, things such as finance. Jesus spoke about money an awful lot. And I think partly because money and ownership and accumulation of personal stuff can sometimes block our true perspective on who is the Lord of all things. When we start to think, um, oh, sorry, we start to think that what we own what we have could be the source of our identity or our security, or might be the source of our power or even honor. We lose sight of the fact that Jesus is Lord of all. Now this can be applied to more than just finance. It can be applied to a lot of things. After all, Lord of all things encompasses rather a lot. To use a more personal example, that's uh, slightly more weighty than a slobbery dog lead, um, my son has a as yet undiagnosed neurological condition and for a long time uh, we didn't know whether this would be something that he would grow out of, whether it would just stay the same or whether we would see um, a decline that would become um, even life limiting. Now this is something that my wife and I have wrestled with, prayed about and cried over an awful lot. Um, but after some prayerful reflection, my wife said to me uh, something quite incredible. She said that she had resolved that our son does not belong to us and that if the worst did happen, that he would be with his true heavenly father. Our son is a blessing given to us to care for and to steward but ultimately he belongs to God. We're looking after him until he returns home. Now, hopefully I, I'm gonna be long gone when that happens. But you see, our son is ours, but he is also God's. 
That is co-ownership. That is a Davidic perspective on who God is and what is his. David had this perspective. We see it in the prayer this morning that we read in uh, 1 Chronicles 29, but it wasn't a one-off. We see it elsewhere. For example, in Psalm 24, which is attributed to David, it says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Now, when we examine this perspective, I'd ask, what are we holding back for ourselves? What is not co-owned? What is solely owned by you? Is it finances? Is it relationships, your career, ambition, perhaps? So I've had two perspectives. What is, sorry, who God is and what is his? And I think the third thing was his promise. See, David knew that God was king over all things and he knew that all things belonged to God. And this meant that the promises made to him by God was to David absolutely astounding. In particular, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we learn that David wants to build a temple, a house for God, but he's not permitted to do so. So rather than this being a massive body blow to David, God makes an incredible promise that through David's lineage, through the Davidic line, he would build a forever kingdom. Now, this kingdom we hear cannot be undone by death, by sin or by the passing of time. That the almighty God would be mindful of David to make that level of promise. A God who always keeps his promises is, I think, what kept David in worship and praise throughout his life, because no matter what his circumstances were, David knew that God would fulfill his promise. Now, for us today, that promise was fulfilled by the life, death and resurrection of Jesus, who was from that Davidic line. So having defeated death and sin, he now restores an eternal relationship with whoever believes in him. So his fulfilment of that promise that was made to David now enables us to enter into a new covenant, a promise of eternal life. And again, like the promise made to David, this promise cannot be undone by death, by sin or by the passing of time. Do we know this God, this promise keeping God, this forgiving, merciful, loving God, this true king who took away all sin and all shame? and keeps every promise he's ever made. Are we astounded like David? As David wrote in Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him? Through Jesus, we now have access to a whole uh, multitude of blessings and promises. Promises such as the ones found in uh, Romans 8, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. We, like David, have an incredible God that is always worthy of praise because of who he is, but also because what he has done and what he has promised to do. So this was undoubtedly a grand public act, framing a legacy of worship. We know that the temple was built by Solomon and we know that it was uh, absolutely majestic in its rich trappings. And we know that God was worshipped there. But I don't think this legacy was forged in a day. David's worship wasn't an isolated incident. Sorry, incident. It wasn't an afterthought towards the end of his life. I better up my worship game. 
we know that throughout his days, and uh, whatever his circumstances, David would worship God. And I think in part, that's because of the three things we've talked about this morning, that he knew that God was the eternal king of all things, that everything belonged to this amazing king, but also that that king would be mindful of him such that he would invite David into this unshakable, unbreakable, eternal promise. When he reflects on that, I think worship for David just seemed like a natural response. So as we close uh, this morning, we're going to go into another time of worship. Can I ask you to just take some time to respond? Can you take time to put things into perspective? Is there anything that's stopping you from saying the earth is the Lord's and everything in it? Or perhaps maybe more personally, my life is the Lord's and everything in it. Take time to put things into perspective that he is king, that all things belong to him, but yet he's mindful of you to the extent that through Jesus, we now have a new covenant, a new promise made to you through faith in him that you can have eternal life. And this cannot be undone by death, by sin or the passing of time. Let that sink in. Don't let it be a one off. Let it form a legacy within the way that you think that perspective on who God is, what is his and the promises he's made to you. And then I think like David and the assembly before him on that day, I think worship is the only natural response. God bless Freedom Church.